Chapter One of the Orphan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Orphan, by Clarence E. Mulford. Chapter One: The Sheriff Rides to War. Many men swore that the orphan was bad, and many swore profanely and with wonderful command of epithets because he was bad, but for obvious reasons that was as far as the majority went to show their displeasure. Those of the minority who had gone farther, and who had shown their hatred by rash actions, only proved their foolishness. For they had indeed gone far, and would return no more. Tradition had it that the orphan was a mongrel, a half-breed, asserting that his mother had been a Sioux with negro blood in her veins. It also asserted that his father had been nominated and unanimously elected by a posse to an elevated position under a tree, and further that the orphan himself had been born during a cloudburst at midnight on the thirteenth of the month. The latter was from the Mexicans, who found great delight in making such terrifying combinations of ill-luck. But tradition was strongly questioned as to his mother for how could the son of such a mother be possessed of the daredevil courage and grit which had made his name a synonym of terror? This contention was well stated and is borne out, for it can be authoritatively said that the mother of the orphan was white, and had neither Indian nor negro blood in her veins, but on the contrary came from a family of gentlefolk. Thus I start aright by refuting slander. The orphan was white, his profanity blue, and his anger red, and having started aright, I will continue with the events which led to the discovery of his innate better qualities and their final ascendancy over the savagely hard nature which circumstances had bred in him. These events began on the day when James Shields, for reasons hereinafter set forth, became actively interested in his career. Shields, by common consent keeper of the law over a territory as large as the state of New Jersey, and whom, out of courtesy, I will call sheriff, was no coward, and neither was he a fool. And when word came to him that the orphan had made a mess of two sheepherders near the U-bend of the Limping Water Creek, he did not forthwith pace the street and inform the citizens of Ford Station that he was about to start on a journey which had for its object the congratulation of the orphan at long range. Upon occasions his taciturnity became oppressive, especially when grave dangers or tense situations demanded concentration of thought. The more he thought, the less he talked, the one notable exception being when stirred to righteous anger by personal insults, in which case his words flowed smoothly along one channel while his thoughts gripped a single idea. To his acquaintances he varied as the mood directed, often saying practically nothing for hours, and at other times discoursing volubly. One thing, a word of his, had become proverbial. When Shields said hell he was in no mood for pleasantries, and the third repetition of the word meant red, red anger. He was a man of strong personality, who loved his friends in staunch, unswerving loyalty and he tolerated his enemies until the last ditch had been reached. He, like the orphan, 
was essentially a humorist in the finest definition of the term, inasmuch as he could find humor in the worst possible situations. He was even now forcibly struck with the humor of his contemplated ride, for the orphan would be so very much surprised to see him. He could picture the expression of weary toleration which would grace the outlaw's face over the sights, and he chuckled inwardly at the thought of how the orphan would swear. He did his shooting as an unavoidable duty, a business, a stern necessity, and he took great delight in its accuracy. When he shot at a man he did it with becoming gravity, but nevertheless he radiated pride and cheerfulness when he hit the man's nose or eye or Adam's apple at a hundred yards. All the time he knew that the man ought to die, that it was a case of necessity, and this explains why he was so pleased about the eye or nose or Adam's apple. With the orphan, popular opinion said it was far different, that his humor was ghastly, malevolent, murderous. That he shot to kill with the same gravity, but that it was that of icy determination, chilling ferocity. He was said to be methodical in the taking of innocent life, even more accurate than the sheriff, wily and shrewd as the leader of a wolf-pack, and equally relentless. The orphan was looked upon as an abnormal development of the idea of destruction, the sheriff a corrective force, and almost as strong as the evil he would endeavor to overcome. The two came as near to the scientist's little joke of the irresistible force meeting the immovable body as can be found in human agents. So Shields, upon hearing of the orphan's latest manifestation of humor, appreciated the joke to the fullest extent and made up his mind to play a similar one on the frisky outlaw. He could not help but sympathize with the orphan, because every man knew what pests the sheepmen were, and Shields, at one time a cowman, was naturally prejudiced against sheep. He was exceedingly weary of having to guard herds of bleeding grass-shavers which so often passed across his domain, and he regarded the sheep-raising industry as an unnecessary evil which should by all rights be deported. But he could not excuse the orphan's crude and savage idea of deportation. The sheriff was really kind-hearted, and he became angry when he thought of the outlaw driving two thousand sheep over the steep bank of the limping water into a pitiful death by drowning. The orphan should have been satisfied in messing up the anatomy of the herders. He did not like a glutton, and he would tell the outlaw so in his own way. He walked briskly through his yard and called to his wife as he passed the house, telling her that he was going to be gone for an indefinite period not revealing the object of his journey, as he did not wish to worry her. Accustomed as she was to have him face danger, she had a loving wife's fear for his safety, and lost many hours' sleep while he was away. He took his rifle from where it leaned against the porch and continued on his way to the small corral in the rear of the yard, where two horses whisked flies and sought the shade. Leading one of them outside, he deftly slung a saddle to its back, secured the cinches, and put on a light bridle. Dropping the Winchester into its saddle holster, he mounted and fought the animal for a few minutes, as he always had to fight it. He spun the cylinders of his forty-five colts and ran his fingers along the underside of his belt for assurance as to ammunition. 
seeing that the black leather case which was slung from the pommel of the saddle contained his field-glass, and that his canteen was full of water, he rode to the back door of his house, where his wife gave him a bag of food. Promising her that he would take good care of himself and to return as speedily as possible, he cantered through the gate and down the street toward the oasis, the door of which was always open. Two dogs were stretched out in the doorway, lazily snapping at flies. As the sheriff drew rein, he heard snores which wheezed from the barroom. "'Say, Dan!' he cried loudly. "'Dan!' "'Shout it out, sheriff!' came the response from within the darkened room, and the bartender appeared at the door. "'If anybody wants me, they may find me at Brent's. I'm going out that way,' the sheriff said, as he loosened the reins. "'Bite to blank you!' he growled at his horse. "'All right, Jim.' sleepily replied the bartender, watching the peace officer as he cantered briskly down the street. He yawned, stretched, and returned to his chair, there to doze lightly as long as he might. Shields usually left word at the oasis as to where he might be found in case he should be badly needed, but in this instance he had left word where he could not be found if needed. He cantered out of the town over the trail which led to Brant's ranch, and held to it until he had put great enough distance behind to assure him that he was out of sight of any curious citizen of Ford Station. Then he wheeled abruptly as he reached the bottom of an arroyo, and swung sharply to the northeast at a right angle to his former course, and pushed his mount at a lope around the chaparrals and cacti, all the time riding more to the east and in the direction of the U-bend of the limping water. He frowned slightly, and grumbled as he estimated that the orphan would have nearly three hours' start of him by the time he reached his objective, which meant a long chase in the pursuit of such a man. To a tenderfoot, the heat would have been very oppressive, even dangerous, but the sheriff thought it an ideal temperature for hunting. He smiled pleasantly at his surroundings, and was pleased by the playful vim of his belligerent pinto whose actions were not in the least intended to be playful. When the animal suddenly turned its head and nipped hard and quick at the sheriff's legs, getting a mouthful of nasty leather and seasoned ash for its reward, he gleefully kicked the pony in the eye when it let go, and then rowled a streak of perforations in its ugly hide with his spurs as an encouragement. The ensuing bucking was joy to his heart, and he feared that he might eventually grow to like the animal. When he arrived at the U-Bend, he put in half an hour bearing the human butts of the orphan's joke, for the perpetrator liked to leave his trophies where they could be seen and appreciated. Shields looked sadly at the dead sheep, and said, Hell twice, and forded the stream, picked up the outlaw's trail on the further side, and cantered along it. The trail was very plain to him, straight as a chalk line, and it led toward the northeast, which suited the sheriff, because there was a goodly-sized water-hole twenty miles further on in that direction. Perhaps he would find the orphan fortified there, for it would be just like that person to monopolize the only drinking-water within twenty miles, and force his humorous adversary to either take the hole or go back to the limping water for a drink. Anyway, the orphan would get awfully soiled wallowing about in the mud and water, and he would not hurt the water much, unless he lacked the decency to bleed on the bank. Having decided to take the hole in preference to riding back to the creek, the sheriff immediately dismissed that phase of the game from his mind, 
and fell to musing about the rumors which had persistently reiterated that the Apaches were out. Practical joking with the orphan and interfering with the traveling of Apache war-parties were much the same in results, so the sheriff made up his mind to attend to the lesser matter, if need be, after he had quieted the man he was following. Everybody knew that Apaches were very bad, but that the orphan was worse. And besides, the latter would be laughing derisively about the matter concerning a drink. The sheriff grinned and rode happily forward, taking pains, however, to circle around all chaparrals and covers of every nature. For he did not know but that his playful enemy might have tired of riding before the waterhole had been reached and decided to camp out under cover. While the sheriff was unafraid, he had befitting respect for the quality of the orphan's marksmanship, which was reputed as being above reproach. And he was not expected to determine offhand whether the outlaw was above lying in ambush. So he used his field-glass constantly in sweeping covers and rode forward toward the water-hole. End of chapter 1